A number of years ago, People Magazine published a survey that measured attitudes towards specific sins. A numerical value was assigned to how guilty people would feel if they committed certain acts. On a scale of 1 to 10, sins were given a sin coefficient, or as they called it, a syndex. 1 being blameless, 10 being guilty to the max. Well, the worst sin was murder, with a syndex of 9.84. Next was rape, 9.77. Other sinister sins were child abuse, drug dealing, adultery. Middle-of-the-road sins were sexual harassment, 6.97. Parking in a handicap zone, 5.53. Greed, cheating on your income tax, and cutting in line. Oh, don't cut in line. And then on the lower end of the sin spectrum, sins folks thought of as benign were selfishness, 4.92. Gossip, 4.1. Jealousy, lust. And last on the list, nude sunbathing. A mere 2.76. Well, according to the poll, for the most part, vice and violence earned the highest syndex, while sins of the heart came in lower. Yet in Romans chapters 2 and 3, we discover that God sees sin differently. God has his own syndex. In chapter 1, Paul picked apart the perversity of pagan Rome. And I'm sure as he did, most of his readers nodded in approval. In fact, some of us might have left last week feeling smug, a bit morally superior. And Paul senses our spiritual snobbishness. Our sin might be more camouflaged. Our wickedness might not appear as such. But people who are religious like you and I can be guilty as well. Not only are the heathen guilty of sin, so are the religious crowd. And in Romans chapters 1 through 3, in essence, the Apostle Paul sets up court. He brings everyone in. God becomes our prosecutor and our judge. In chapter 1, the heathen are tried and sentenced. In chapter 2, it's the hypocrite who's in the dock. In chapter 3, the Hebrew or the religious person gets tried, and then all humanity are on trial. Both unrighteousness and self-righteousness end up guilty. For the first step toward salvation is to realize our need. Well, Romans 2 begins, Therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are, who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Once there was a woman, she was racing to catch a flight. She had no time for lunch, and so she grabbed a pack of cookies on the way to the plane. When she was sitting in the aisle seat, a man was seated by the window, and there was an empty seat in between. Well, after the plane took off, the woman reached over into the empty seat, and she opened the package of cookies in order to eat one. Well, to her shock, the man reached over, and he ate one as well. She thought, how dare this guy eat one of my cookies? Well, a few minutes later, she ate another cookie. The man also took a cookie. She took one, he took one. 
Well, finally, just one cookie was left. And so the man reached over, he picked it up, he broke it in two, and he handed half of it to the lady. She was furious. Well, as they exited the plane, she was rummaging through her purse looking for the claim ticket for her baggage. But guess what she found? Her cookies. (laughs) The whole time she was condemning the man for eating her cookies, she was guilty of eating his. See, Paul says to the hypocrite in us all, who are you to judge another when you practice the same things? In chapter 1, Paul took us on a tour of Skid Rome. The streets are littered with broken glass. Police sirens scream. Windows and doors are screened with burglar bars. Prostitutes walk the streets while derelicts lay in the gutter. Skid Rome was obviously an awful place to be. But in chapter 2, we realize that we all live closer to Skid Rome than we think. For the same seed that blooms there lies just below the surface of our hearts. You see, the anger that causes you to shout an obscenity, if nurtured, can pull a trigger and end a life. The lust that you let grow in your heart can send you to bed with a co-worker or make you a customer on Skid Row. Paul's point is we have no right to condemn the adulterer or the homosexual unless we've never sinned in our own hearts. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 reads, Let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit. We only think of the filthiness of the flesh. But notice the flesh and the spirit can get filthy. You can get dirty on the inside and on the outside, in attitude or in action. The consequence of a spiritual sin may not be as immediate or felt as deeply as a sin of the flesh. You might avoid the risk of venereal disease or keep your family intact with a spiritual sin, but though the fallout is less, the kernel is the same. For in the eyes of God, the seed and the deed are one. This means don't judge the deed if the seed is growing in your heart. Notice three times here in verse 1, Paul uses the term judge. It's the Greek term krino, which means to damn to hell. Hey, it's not our call to ever condemn anyone to hell. But not all judgments are wrong or prohibited. In Matthew 7, Jesus commands us to make certain judgments. He says, beware of false prophets by their fruits. You will know them. We're supposed to judge false prophets. Apparently, it's okay to judge for identification, just not for condemnation. Let's say you're a dad. Imagine a teenage boy arrives at your door expecting to take your daughter on a date. Beer cans litter the bed of his pickup truck. He's got a joint hanging out of his mouth. He's got a folded up porno magazine sticking in his hip pocket. I hope no father in this room today isn't going to size this guy up and refuse to let his daughter get near him. At this point, it's a dad's job to judge. Now, you don't need to condemn him to hell or send him there. In fact, you should try to love him, even share the Lord with him. Just don't dare let your daughter get anywhere near the fella. You're not being judgmental. 
You're being discerning. What Paul forbids here in verse 1 is a holier-than-thou attitude. The idea that at the core of my being, I'm better or more spiritual or more righteous than you. For the Bible teaches that we're all sinners by nature. In fact, a self-righteous man is quick to judge others. To justify himself, he focuses on the person that he thinks is worse than him. See, his goal is to make the other guy look bad so that he can look good. It's amazing how harsh we can be on others and how lenient we can be with ourselves. It's been said faults are like headlights. The other car lights always seem more glaring than your own. Well, notice verse 2. But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. You see, that one of the reasons that God forbids us from judging is that you and I seldom know the whole story. Psalm 19 verse 9 declares, The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. God alone sees things as they truly are. That's why He alone can make the proper call. Hey, we're to do the loving and let God do the judging. Verse 3 tells us, And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things, and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? I mean, sometimes we think we're the exception to the rule, don't we? Oh, God is going to judge everyone except me. Oh, wait a minute. Or, or at least he's going to grade me on the curve. No, no, don't be foolish. God judges everyone the same. And then he says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance? What a wonderful verse this is. The fact God is a just judge should make his mercy that much sweeter to us. That he could judge us, yet loves us instead endears us to him. It's his goodness that leads us to repentance. You know, I grew up in a church that tried to scare the hell out of you every week. That was their approach. It was hellfire and damnation. And yet fear prompts a person to do just enough good to avoid hell. It doesn't produce a desire in them to please God. It's only when you discover God's love that you want to love him in return. Holy desires aren't motivated by the horrors of hell, but by the compassions of God. It's the goodness of God that leads a person to repentance. Remember that when you're sharing your faith with others. And then verse 5 tells us, But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The Greek word translated hardness here is sclerosis. We call the hardening of the arteries arterial sclerosis. And this can happen to us spiritually. We can get a hard heart, can't we? Beware. Hard heart is dangerous. In the 1880s, there was a clerk that worked for Wells Fargo Bank, and he found a way to steal a silver dollar every single day. He brought the coin home, and he placed it in a trunk up in his attic. But over time, the trunk got so heavy that one night it broke through the ceiling and it fell on the bank clerk while he was still lying in his bed asleep, killing him instantly. And this is what Paul is saying could happen to us. 
A hard heart stores up God's wrath until one day the ceiling breaks and it all comes crashing down on you. He says in verse 6, Who will render to each one according to his deeds? Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. But glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. See, God's judgments are fair and they're clear. Hey, God bases his judgments on what you do, on your obedience or disobedience. Not your good intentions, not on some favoritism. It's not who you are that matters, it's what you do. Notice, God will render to each one according to his deeds. Do good, God will spare you. Do evil, God will judge you. And it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Greek. Obey God and you can expect glory, honor, peace. Disobey God and you can expect wrath, tribulation, and anguish. For verse 11 says, where there is no partiality with God. For as many as have sinned without law will also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law will be judged by the law. Notice God judges based on the opportunities that we've received. Based on the light that we've been given. You know, those who've had the Bible will be judged according to the Bible. But those who've never read God's word won't be responsible for what they never had. Realize all men sin, and they deserve to be punished. But the pygmy in the Amazon who's never heard God's word will be judged differently than the person who's lived his whole life with Bibles all around the house, who could have heard and yet rejected God's truth. To be forgiven, the only answer is Jesus. But the sin of every person is judged by the light that they've received. God is fair about that. And then verse 13 explains, For not the hearers of the law are just in the sight of God, but the doers of the law will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are a law to themselves, who show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and between themselves their thoughts accusing or else excusing them. You see, there will be no excuses on the judgment day. All our excuses are flimsy. God, God has worked it out so that there is no excuse. Some folks lack access to God's word, but that doesn't mean that they're blind to God's will. For here we're told that God has declared enough of his will through a myriad of ways to hold all sinners accountable. Paul here is saying that God reveals himself to us in two different ways. Through divine law, which is the Bible, and through natural law. And notice verse 15. It lists three components to the natural law. First, there is an innate sense of right and wrong in every man. 
Paul calls this the law written in their hearts. Second, there is their conscience also bearing witness. Every person is born with a conscience or with this inner policeman who enforces right and wrong. And then third, societies develop a moral consensus. Notice how Paul puts it, between themselves, their thoughts, accusing or excusing. In other words, every society has agreed upon morality that forms through reason and logic. All humans, whether they've been exposed to divine law or not, have a sense of right and wrong. They have a conscience, and they're privy to a moral consensus. Thus, God holds them responsible for their sin. You know, the founders of our country spoke often of natural law and inalienable rights. They understood that God created humans as moral beings. And even without the Bible, we still possess a knowledge of good and evil. The Roman philosopher Plutarch once was asked, who shall govern the governor? He replied, the law, not written on papyrus scrolls or wooden tablets, but his own reason within the soul, which perpetually dwells with him and guards him and never leaves his soul void of leadership. See, there is a law within every human, and tragically, all men have broken that law. I mean, who has always done what they knew to be right in every situation? I haven't. That's why every man needs to be forgiven. And the only forgiveness is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. None of us can stand on our own, as Paul says, in the day when God will judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ, according to my gospel. On that day, God's judgment will be public and open for all to see. Notice Paul says, all the secrets of men will be brought into the light of day. Reminds us of Matthew 10, verse 26, where Jesus said, For there is nothing covered that will not be revealed, and hidden that will not be known. There are no secrets with God. This is why we all need the gospel of Jesus. I read about a Michigan woman who went vacationing down in sunny Florida. And she decided to do some nude sunbathing. Recall on the Syndex, that's only 2.76. That's no biggie. At least she thought it was no biggie. And so she found a secluded spot on the hotel's roof, and she started soaking up the rays. In minutes, though, she got a visit from the manager, insisting that she get dressed. She thought no one could see her, but she had actually stretched out on the dining room skylight. And the warning, sins you thought were no big deal, actually are to God. If unforgiven, they'll be naked and open for all to see. If you don't want your dirty laundry hung out on the line, then you need to seek forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Verse 17 tells us, indeed, you are called a Jew and you rest, or that is rely on the law and make your boast in God. Now, in chapter 1, Paul prosecuted the heathen. The first of chapter 2, he exposes the hypocrite. Now, in verse 17, the Jews turn, come, it's their turn to come to the stand before God the judge. 
Now, the Old Testament declared that Jews were God's chosen people. The problem, though, is that their heritage went to their head. They assumed that who they were made them exempt from his judgment. There was a Jewish tradition that said Abraham sat at hell's gate to keep Jews out regardless of how they lived. Trypho, a second century rabbi, wrote this. They who are of the seed of Abraham, according to the flesh, shall in any case, even if they be sinners and unbelieving and disobedient towards God, share in the eternal kingdom. Boy, that's pretty arrogant. He believed that Jews got a pass. Didn't matter how they lived. See, the Hebrews brim with this false confidence. Whereas the Bible teaches that the greater the privilege, the greater the responsibility. Thus, rather than exempting them from judgment, their blessings levied a stricter judgment. Paul continues to enumerate the Jews' advantages in verse 18. He writes, And they know his will and approve the things that are excellent, being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of babes, having the form of knowledge and truth in the law. Notice the Jews were instructed out of the law. The Greek word instructed is the word katecheo, from which we get our term catechism. Year in, year out, the law was repeated and drilled into their heads. It just never penetrated through their hearts. They wrote and read and copied and studied and even taught the law They just failed to obey it. You see, the Jewish synagogues were full of the same type of folks who sit in churches today. They're going to miss heaven by 18 inches, the distance from their heads to their hearts. Verse 21 says, You therefore who teach another, do you not teach yourself? You who preach that a man should not steal, do you steal? You who say, do not commit adultery. Do you commit adultery? Jesus says, if a man looks at a woman to lust after her, he's committed adultery in his heart. In God's view, the sins of the spirit, the sins of the soul are just as bad as the sins of the flesh. See, the Jews won't obey God's law. Certainly not its intent. But they ease their conscience by teaching the law. There's an old saying. Those who can do, those who can't teach. Jews were zealous teachers, but they were horrible doers. And Paul asks the Jews in verse 22, he says, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? First century Jews hated idolatry. An idol robbed God of the glory due his name. Yet Paul says that these Jews have been ripping God off in more subtle ways. Remember back in Malachi chapter 3, verse 8, there the prophet said that they had robbed God by withholding tithes and offerings. And people today continue to steal from God. He wants us to honor him with the first portion of our income and with one day in seven, with the tithe and with the Sabbath. Instead, our hoarding insults him. And then in verse 23, Paul asks, You who make your boast in the law, Do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. 
And Paul quotes Isaiah 52, verse 5. God intended for the Jews to be a light to the Gentiles. Instead, their hypocrisy became a hindrance. For circumcision is indeed profitable if you keep the law. But if you are a breaker of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. Now, here was another Jewish assumption. Circumcision alone made a man right with God. One Jew wrote, Our rabbis have said that no circumcised man will see hell. A Jewish commentary put it, God swore to Abraham that no one who was circumcised should be sent to hell. And yet Paul here reminds the Jews that circumcision is just a symbol. What matters to God is a person's heart. See, if you're a lawbreaker at heart, circumcision is worthless. Religious symbolism is worthless. And there are Christians who make the same mistake. They substitute symbol for substance, replica for reality. Oh, people think that if they've been baptized, a symbol, or they take communion, a symbol, or worship on a certain day, or join a specific church, then they'll be acceptable to God. Charles Hodge wrote, Whenever true Christianity declines, there is a tendency to lay undue stress on external rights. You see, ritual and tradition can be a cover-up for what's lacking in the heart. Friends, form never replaces faith. And yet, faith can override the lack of form. For he says, therefore, if an uncircumcised man keeps the righteous requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be counted as circumcision? In other words, take an uncircumcised, pig-eating, Sabbath-working Gentile who trusts Jesus with all his heart. He ends up more acceptable to God than the orthodox, kosher, circumcised Jew. For pleasing God is about faith not form. And will not the physically uncircumcised, if he fulfills the law, judge you, that is the Jews, who even with your written code and circumcision are a transgressor of the law? A Gentile with a pure heart will judge the Jews who played the hypocrite. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men, but from God. And I can't tell you how a Jew would have taken those words. I mean, this would, to a law-observant Jew, this would be like taking a two-by-four and smacking him right between the eyes. Paul rattles the Jews with these words. They had put their confidence in circumcision. But here he tells them that the true family of God are the humble, the circumcised of heart, not of the flesh. In Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, God made a promise to Israel. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart to love the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Physical circumcision was merely a foreshadowing, the symbol of a deeper cut or the eventual removal of the sin nature. This is what it all looked toward. 
See, in a sense, you and I, we need our wings clipped. That's what we need. You know, to domesticate a duck, you clip its wings. Or at the first hint of winter, it flies south. And likewise, our sin nature makes us prone to go south on God, doesn't it? That's why we fly to coop. It's a sin in our hearts. And that's why we need to be spiritually clipped. A genuine child of God, Paul says. The person called a true Jew experiences a spiritual surgery, a circumcision of the heart, where God's Spirit cuts out our sin nature and replaces it with His nature, a nature of love and compliance to His will. See, a Christian is changed not by a scalpel, but by the Holy Spirit who cuts out that sin nature and gives us humble, compliant hearts. And then we come to chapter 3. And he says, What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? And here's the argument that you would expect from a Jew who just read chapter 2. If being born a Jew, if being circumcised doesn't make you right with God, then what's the benefit of being a Jew? What advantage then has the Jew? And Paul answers it, much in every way, chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. The word oracle refers to a divinely inspired message, and thus the advantage of being a Jew was access to the law of God. Having God's word was a national treasure that had spared Israel many pitfalls common among the pagans. You know, there's an interesting book titled, None of These Diseases. It's by a medical doctor named S.I. McMillan. And in the book, Dr. McMillan describes how many of the Old Testament laws actually helped the Hebrews avoid various illnesses. For example, in the Middle Ages, when the bubonic plague was sweeping across Europe, the one group largely unaffected by it were the Jews. Their kosher diet and their hygiene requirements prohibited the deadly disease from spreading in their communities. The law was a protection to them. There were many advantages for being a Jew. Verse 3, for what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? And in these next few verses now, Paul is going to anticipate some questions from his readers. Kind of like a talk show host. Questions. We're going to field questions now from the listeners. And the first one he anticipates is, if we're saved by God's faithfulness, not our faithfulness, then if I'm not saved, does that mean God is unfaithful? And Paul answers that question. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. Let me put it this way. On occasion, someone will come up to me and they'll say, Pastor Sandy, man, I struggle with sin. And I've prayed, but God just refuses to deliver me. God just refuses to help me. Christianity's just not working for me. Now, I get that a lot. And when I hear that complaint, I have to make a choice. For God promises to do his part if you do your part. So if it's not happening, who's dropping the ball? Well, I choose you. 
I've walked with God for 40, 44 years. He's always been faithful to me. I've never known him to be unfaithful. I, I know God is faithful. What about you? I choose you. As Paul says, let God be true, but every man a liar. It's either you or God. God's not lying. Got to be you. See, it's you that needs to take another look at you. He says, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Now, here's another question that might be asked. When a person sins, God judges righteously. So someone might say, well, if our sins put God's righteousness on display, then don't we do him a favor by sinning? We give him an opportunity to show his righteousness. Are you kidding? It's a silly argument, but Paul admits here he's dealing with silly people. And he answers it. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God is increased through my lie to his glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come, as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. In essence, he says, Paul says, our excuses don't match up with our coming reality. God is going to judge sinners whether you like it or not. We all are going to be held accountable for what we do. He says, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. And this has been Paul's point for three chapters now. The heathen, the hypocrite, the Hebrew. Now all humanity is deserving of God's wrath. You know, we really need to add another verse to that little nursery uh, song we sing with our kids in Sunday school. You know, red and yellow, black and white. We're all sinners in his sight. That's what we ought to be teaching them. That's what Paul's teaching us here in Romans 3. As he writes in verse 9, we're all under sin. The phrase hupo harmatia, it means under the influence or the domination of sin. See, your problem is not that you just sinned once, but that your nature is sinful. You're controlled by sin and selfishness. Outside of Christ, sin is our basic instinct. Verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Think of that. Of the hundred billion humans who have walked this planet, there has never been but one who was totally righteous in God's eyes. His name was Jesus Christ. There's never been but one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. This, this word unprofitable, it was used to describe spoiled milk. In essence, God is looking at humanity and saying, you're all rotten. There is none who does good. No, not one. There is none. There is none. There is none who does good. No, not one. Paul has just shot us all down with his none gun. That's what he's done. Verse 13 illustrates man's evil. He says their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Notice, we're sinful from head to toe. Verse 16, destruction and misery are in their ways. 
and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And with that, Paul puts you in a really bad spot because he has just rendered a final verdict on all humanity, including you and me. We are as guilty as sin. Nothing like a feel-good sermon, is there? Verse 19. It's going to get better. It's going to get better. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped. See, he wants to shut up all the bragging, all the boasting. Look at me. Look how good I am. No, you're not. There's none that's good. And all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. You see, the Jews mistakenly assumed that they could be made right with God by adhering to the law. And folks today make the same mistake. They try to earn God's favor by conforming to a code of conduct, whether that be God's rules or it be a set of religious rules that they've picked up somewhere in their past. And yet rules were never intended to save us. Even God's law just showed us our sin. See, the law was like an x-ray. X-rays don't heal. They take an x-ray of you, it doesn't heal anything. It just reveals. It shows you what was broken. God's law detected the fracture in our relationship with God. It showed us our need. It didn't fix it. He says, but now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. And here Paul sums up our condition. For there is no difference for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Well, he hammers that home, doesn't he? All have sinned and fallen short. You know, think of it. You know, the Hawaiian Islands are roughly 2,000 miles from Los Angeles. 2,000 miles, about a four-hour flight. And yet, suppose you and I and long jump champion Carl Lewis in his prime decided to jump from Los Angeles to Honolulu. Let's go to Hawaii. Let's jump over there. Well, Carl jumps first. He soars 30 feet through the air, a magnificent jump. But he splash, drowns. Well, you're next. And you jump about 10 feet. That's a good effort, pretty good effort. But you drown. Well, I'm last. And I clear about three feet. I just ate a pizza or something, you know. Well, listen, Carl did better than you. And you did better than me. But in light of 2,000 miles, friends, none of us were even close. And it's the same when it comes to God's glory. Up against God, we all fall short. Or as another translation puts it, we have all come in last. In God's Olympics, Jesus wins and everyone else finishes tied for last. But notice the revolutionary idea introduced in verse 22. This blows your mind. It's so stunning. 
There is a righteousness of God apart from the law. Now, who would have thought that? In keeping the law, the Jews were looking for righteousness in the wrong place. None of us are good enough to build our own resume of righteous behavior. But there is a righteousness apart from the law. This is good news. It has nothing to do with our performance. It's God's gift to us, given by his grace, paid for by Jesus, and received by us through faith. Paul explains how it works in verse 24. He says, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The word justified, I love it. It sounds like it's definition. It means just as if I'd never sinned. Even though you're guilty of sin, God treats you as if you're not. He treats you as innocent if you're in Christ Jesus. You know, in 1986, the U.S. Congress enacted the Emergency Medical Treatment Active Labor Act. It requires hospitals to treat an emergency patient as if he can pay, even if he can't. And this is the idea of justification. God doesn't ignore that we can't pay, that we're bankrupt spiritually. He knows that we've sinned and can't afford salvation. And yet it doesn't stop him from giving it to us anyway. For in Christ, we are justified freely or literally without a cause. We also have the redemption that is in Christ. The word redemption came from the slave markets. You know, on rare occasion, a slave would endear himself to a citizen And this rich Roman would purchase the slave in order to set him free. He'd pay off the slave's debts and freedom was granted. He was no longer a slave, no longer. He was redeemed. And this is what Christ has done for us. He's paid off our debts in order to set us free. To be his son. Not just a servant, but a son. Or a daughter. God justifies us freely. He redeems us in Christ whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Now you can trace this word propitiation to its Hebrew root and you'll find that it referred to the mercy seat. This was the gold lid that covered the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. Now the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne on earth. Inside of it were the tablets of the law. And over it was God's Shekinah glory. So, to behold his glory, you had to face up to his law. And this is a problem for sinners, because sinners have failed to obey God's law. Thus, they're barred from God's presence. But God did something truly wonderful. He put a lid on the law. The blood sacrifice gained God's pardon, and the blood-stained mercy seat became the meeting place between God and man. And at the very place that once cried out for judgment on us, God brought mercy to us. And this is what God did in Christ. Jesus has become our mercy seat. At the place our sin was judged, that old rugged cross, God applied the blood of his sacrifice and extended mercy to those who trust in him. Jesus has now put a lid on the law 
and he has extended mercy to those who believe in him. I told you it was going to get better. Can't get no better than that. And I marvel at what Paul says next. Because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness. In other words, down through history, God's righteousness had cried out for mankind's sin to be judged. But God waited. God bore with it. He passed over our sin until the day that his son could take our sin on his shoulders and pay its price. Today, Jesus is our propitiation. He is our place of mercy. He is the only place that you can find the mercy of God. And all this happened so that God might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And I love this phrase, just and the justifier. Hey, God loves you. He loves you so much. But God can't bend the rules. God's not going to make an exception for you. He can't bend the rules. He can't be unfair. The judge can't fudge. God said the wages of sin is death. Somebody had to die. Thus Jesus died to pacify God's justice and at the same time satisfy God's mercy. You see, the cross of Jesus enabled God to save face. He was just. And to save us, he was merciful at the same time. Making God both just and the justifier. Boy, I praise him for that. Where is boasting then? Oh, it's excluded. You can't boast when it was paid for by Jesus. But what law of works? No, but by the law of faith. That's all we do. That's our requirement is to have faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The Jew boasted he saw salvation as a prize that he won, but justification by faith nullifies all pride. Can't take credit for it when Jesus paid it all. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. All people are saved the same way, by grace, through faith. Thus, there's no more room for pride or for prejudice. And then finally, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. I love author Max Lucado's comment on this verse. He says, faith causes us to be what the law truly wants. See, we're given grace, but then we're driven by that same grace. Grace fuels our engine. For when you understand how much God truly loves you, you're going to want to love him in return. And here I can testify. Hey, I have experienced far greater purity in my life by resting in God's grace than I ever achieved by my own grit and my own discipline. Willpower is no match for God's power and God's grace. The key to victory is faith in God's grace. And there we have Romans chapters 2 and 3. Father, we thank you 